The reading tonight will be from uh, 1 John, the second chapter, verses 3 through 11. We know that we have come to know him if we obey his commandments. The man who says, I know him, but does not do what he commands is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But if anyone obeys his word, God's love is truly made complete in him. This is how we know we are in him. Whoever claims to live in him must walk as Jesus did. Dear friends, I am not writing you a new command, but an old one, which you have had since the beginning. This old command is the message you have heard. Yet I am writing you a new command. Its truth is seen in him and you, because the darkness is passing and the true light is already shining. Anyone who claims to be in the light but hates his brother is still in the darkness. Whoever loves his brother lives in the light, and there is nothing in him to make him stumble. But whoever hates his brother is in the darkness and walks alone around in the darkness. He does not know where he is going because the darkness has blinded him. <clears throat> First John chapter 2, verses 3 through 11. Let's begin with a word of prayer. Father, the, the words of this last song that we have sung to you are not just words of praise, but the desire of our heart. We pray, Father, that you will create in us a, a new spirit, a, a new way of being, a, a new disposition, a, a new life, a new way of thinking, a new way of, of interacting with with this world, a, a new way of, of fellowshipping with You. We, we pray for all of these things, Father, and ask that You make it so through Your great power. At the same time, Father, we, we ask that You expand our mind, that You, uh, in terms of our knowledge of Your Word, that, that You expand and magnify that, that, that base of, of inspired Word in our hearts and souls and mind, Father, in a way that that helps us to understand you and, 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 to, and to see you each and every day in our life. We want to bring you glory for the greatness of the gifts of your grace to us each and every day. The blessings that fall upon us, those that we see and those that we don't see, Father. We're thankful for all of these things. And so as we think about this letter written 2,000 years ago, Father, we, we ask that you give us eyes that see and ears that hear. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. One, one of the things that is important about 1 John is that uh, through the years, as, as I've read this, this book and thought about it, this letter and thought about it, there has uh, been opportunity for a lot of, of, of bad thinking, wrong thinking, erroneous thinking, for bad theology to be created. Uh, that, that has been created through, uh, you know, different, different thought process and these kinds of things, for all of that to be corrected. Uh, bad theology that is harmful to us spiritually being corrected as we, we press our mind and do business with, with this book. And I want to give you some examples of how this book corrects our thinking as it pertains to the things of God. The first is Christianity is more grit than grace. 
you know, a lot of times we think of Christianity as, as, uh, as, as being a grit your teeth. Uh, there, there are lots of passages that talk about picking up your cross daily and following Jesus. There's, uh, there's, there's certainly moments when doing the right thing is, is never, never easy. And, and, and so if, you know, if, if that begins to be the way, though, that we only shape the way that we experience our faith, then, then we miss out on some of the opportunities that Scripture expresses the, a fount of joy to rise up inside of us. Now, obviously, you know, living the Christian faith, especially in a world like this, in a, in a culture like ours, is a difficult thing. And there are times when, when we agonize under the weight of the faith. But at the same time, it is the testimony and the teaching of Scripture that our experience is a, a complete joy that comes from having this, this wholesome kind of fellowship with the Father. And so Christianity is, is, is not just about grit. And this is one of the things that John teaches us. He says in chapter 1, verse 4, we write this to make our joy complete. The, one of the reasons that 1 John exists in the Bible is for us to understand this one particular fact, this truth about the faith, and that is it is about our joy being made complete. It is about living even in the midst of the pain of suffering and the agonizing trauma that can happen to us, the tragedies that take place in our life. There is a thread or a stream of joy that goes right through the middle of it. And then secondly... Uh, and this has to do with salvation. Salvation equals graduation and not a new birth. Uh, one of the things that, uh, that I guess maybe over the last decade or so that I've become uh, very concerned about is that the idea of Christianity not being equated with discipleship but being equated with just another one of the philosophies that you might find in the world. That Christianity is a worldview. That Christianity is a way of values. It's a, it, it's, it's a, a way of... Of, uh, of thinking about politics or thinking about money or thinking about ethics. But salvation is more than that. It, it's more than just graduation. In fact, the Bible over and over, uh, predominantly in places like, uh, like Peter's writings, salvation is not graduation, it is a new birth. And one of the erroneous theologies that we see developing inside the church is that salvation is sort of the end, that, that baptism is the end of the road. That once you are baptized, then there's nothing that you have to worry about for the rest of your life. Nothing could be further from the truth. When you are saved, when you are adopted as a child and, and brought as a citizen into the kingdom of God, as a child into the family of God, that begins a lifelong series of developmental experiences that, that you learn through God's Word, that you experience through the strength of the Spirit that sanctifies us as you become to look more and more as, as Jesus walked and lived and looked and spoke and viewed things on the planet when He lived here for those 33 years. In fact, John will say this in 1 John chapter 2, verse 6. He says, whoever claims to live in Him, that is, if you claim to be a Christian, if you claim to know Christ, if you claim to, to be a part of His, His world, then you have to walk as Jesus did, which means that there's a transformation that takes place. So your salvation is not a graduation. It's not the end of the road and then everything's gravy from there on out. It is the, actually the beginning of a new way of living. And then number three, grace is humans doing all they can do and God doing the rest. 
That's one of the earliest definitions that I, I ever received uh, for, the, for what grace was all about. That, 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 that God is the one that makes up what you can't do yourself. And as, 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 as good as that might sound, it's completely non-biblical. It's non-scriptural. That the teaching of the Scripture according to grace, or what grace is, is that your salvation is a gift. That God does it all. And you are accepting that gift. That, that Christ is that atoning sacrifice on the cross. 1 John chapter 2, verse 2. He is the atoning sacrifice for our sins. Now, you, you, you know, obviously there's, there's condition on that. You do have to accept the gift that is being offered. You do have to accept the forgiveness that is being offered. You do have to accept the sacrifice that is being made you know, in your place. Christ is that substitute. But the testimony of the Scripture in Paul's writing, in, in, in John's writing here, is that it is Christ that is making that atonement. The, the need that, or the, the penalty that needs to be paid because of the crimes that our sins have committed against God's good creation, we can't do. We cannot make it right with God. Only Christ can do that. And so what we're doing at, the, at that point of salvation, when we are being baptized, when we are confessing our sins, when we are confessing Christ as Lord, when we are repenting, is, is accepting what was accomplished for us on the cross. And then after that, that moment of salvation where we become God's child, we are living a life that is worthy of that grace that we have received. Uh, another erroneous piece of theology that, that you hear from time to time, even, even today, uh, the last thought, a sinful thought quandary. And we've, I've talked about that in the past. I can remember debating this or it being debated in, in the, the dorms you know, during freshman uh, Bible classes and uh, at, at, among freshman Bible majors. The, here's here's the, the scenario. A man is driving down the road. He drives off a cliff. His last thought as he's accidentally going off that cliff, knowing that, that death is imminent, is a cuss word. And he doesn't think quickly enough to pray for forgiveness so that he dies with that curse word just hanging around his neck like a millstone. And is he saved or is he lost? One of the things that, that 1 John teaches us is that, you know, he writes this so that we will not sin, chapter 2, verse 1. But if anybody does sin, that is, if there is, you know, these points in time where sin is, is, you know, we, 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 uh, we, we commit a sin against the kingdom of God, against God's holiness. What John says is when that happens, we have one who speaks to the Father in our defense. Jesus Christ, the righteous one. And then maybe one last one. You can never know you're saved. I re remember as an... Uh, as a young man, maybe I, maybe I was about 17 or 18 years old, was thinking about going into the ministry, and I asked an older minister, I said, can you really know if you're saved or not? Can you know once and for all that you're saved? And he thought about it, and he said, I hope so. But what he had also hoped is that when he finds himself at judgment, that he had hoped that he had done enough to go to heaven at the end of his life. In 1 John chapter 2, verse 3, John writes, we know that we have come to know Him. 
And then he begins to lay out these experiences that we'll, we'll talk about a little bit later. But one of the great promises of Christianity is this inward certainty that you belong to God. That you can know that you are saved. I believe that you can know that you are saved. That you are His. That you are accepted. That you will be with Him when you die. Can you be saved and miserable? Yes. But here's the thing. You can't live the Christian life the way that it's supposed to be lived without this, without knowing that you know. This is where you begin to have that fellowship with God. That's where that joy begins to be made complete in your life. Now, there are lots of people who will disagree with this assurance of salvation and the assurance of going to heaven. I mean, they'll say, how can anyone really know that they're saved? You're not God. God is the only judge. But generally speaking, folks who struggle with this essentially see Christianity as doing stuff in, you know, it's the externals. That Christianity is about the externals. It's about going to church. It's about doing good deeds. It's following the rules. It's adhering to the doctrines. Now the reason that they think it's arrogant to say that you know that you're saved is because essentially there's legalism at the core of that kind of thinking. In a legalist system, it's a, it is about the externals. It's about, as Jesus said, you know, the problem with the Pharisees in Matthew chapter 23 is that they're whitewashed tombs. They look good on the outside, but on the inside they're filled with what? Dead men's bones, right? It's because they understand the externals, but don't understand that the kingdom is something that comes inside of them. That's why Jesus takes them to task in Matthew chapter 23. But in a legalist system, you're never sure because you're never, you're never sure that you've done enough. You're never sure that you've come up to the specs. And the very idea that someone might think that the assurance of salvation is arrogant reveals that there is some legalism about the doing the stuff, about the, you know, the, uh, the externals at the core. But in legalism, you're never quite sure you've done enough. And, and this understanding of Christianity is, de is, is defective at best. It makes Christianity a huge dysfunctional system where no one really knows if they've performed enough to satisfy the Father. Uh, many of you know families, or maybe you're the product of a family where parental acceptance was, was based on performance. You were in when you performed well, when you got the good grades, when you brought home a good report card, when, when you did your chores, when you, you know, when you obeyed and all these kinds of things. And you were not when you did not perform up to the specified standards. According to 1 John, this understanding of Christianity is broken and that's why it doesn't work very well. There is never that sense of a relationship with God that can be described as fellowship. As fellowship. But John says in Christianity, that's the thing that's possible. There's no experience of that complete joy throughout all of life. But John says, that's really possible. You're happy. In this kind of a system, you're happy only when you think you've done well. When you think you've performed up you know, up to, the, uh, up to the task, that you've reached some kind of a standard when you, you've done well. But when you don't, when you fall, when you trip, when you stumble, then you're devastated because you know that you haven't lived up to this kind of a standard. And that's why this understanding of Jesus as both atonement and advocate is so important. He has saved you in the past by offering you a way out from the penalty of your sin, by paying that penalty Himself through the suffering and the death He experienced 
on the cross. He is that atoning sacrifice. The thing that God required for sin to be paid in full, He, he paid it in full there on the cross once and for all. We've looked at that out of Hebrews and other, other verses in the, in the New Testament a couple of weeks ago. But that's why this understanding of Jesus as atonement and advocate is important. He has paid that price. He has saved you in the past. But in the present, He is also saving you by being your advocate, by being your proxy. The things that He has achieved as your proxy, as your advocate, as your paraclete, the one that comes up beside you in 1 John chapter 2, verses 1 and 2, are the things that you yourself have achieved as well. And you know that you know Him, John says. Because of this, you know that you know Him. This word know is one of the first words you encounter in the Bible. Adam knew his wife Eve. And she conceived and bore a son in, in Genesis. And most people, when they think about the, the context of the Bible, most people understand that there are times when the word know is code for a sexual relationship within the covenant of marriage. But this word know doesn't equal sex but it means sex within marriage and gives us our first insight into what intimacy with the spouse is all about. It's the merging of two lives, right? It's two people coming to complete and intimate knowledge of each other through daily interchanges, through personal exchanges. It's more than just being married legally, having signed your name and having it witnessed on this, on this, this, this binding contract. It's two lives that are integrating and assimilating with each other. Now, Ellen and I have, for 30 years now, been legally married. Since, since 1982, legally married. Got the proof. It's in, a, in an envelope in a, in a safe deposit box. But at the same time, I have become assimilated to her and integrated to her. My life has merged into her life that she doesn't, you know, she doesn't make a decision as her life is assimilated into mine and merged into mine and integrated with me, we don't make decisions without thinking about how the other one's going to respond. When I, when I go to the grocery store, there are times when our lives have so assimilated, integrated, and merged together that I'm wondering, you know, should I get the chocolate chip mint or should I get the vanilla, which is my favorite? But because we've assimilated, I know, and it, because I know her, I get the chocolate chip mint. In other words, I not only have this legal document that says that I'm married, but I also have the, ex the inner experience of knowing that I'm married. That every decision that I make involves another individual. That there's nowhere that I go where she's not thinking about me or that I'm not thinking about her. All of those interactions that she and I have had for the last 33 years, the 30 of those being married, all of the exchanges, both you know, the significant discussions, which is sort of a euphemism for you know, a low-grade fight, and all of those really great conversations that we've had about the future and about dreams and all, the, all of that, that stuff. The assimilation, the integration, the mergings of lives. I go nowhere without her, even when she's not with me. And John is teaching us that this kind of knowledge of God is possible. And by the way, John's not the only one. Paul writes in Romans chapter 12, verses 1 through 3, I urge you, brothers, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. 
This is your spiritual act of worship. Notice what he's talking about there. On a daily basis, there's something that you're doing with your entire being. You are living it according to God's will. You are offering it in the way that you live as, as a worship to God because of all of the things that God has accomplished for you in Romans chapter 6, in Romans chapter 7, in Romans chapter 8, Romans chapter 12. Because that's true, every day your life is a worship of the good things that you have received from God. Then he continues... Don't conform any longer to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. That means, you know, because this is true, one of the byproducts is you're going to think differently. Don't be conformed to the world. Think differently about the world because of all of the things that God has done for you. And because that's true, verse 3, then you're going to be able to test and approve what God's will is. You know, getting back to, to marriage, I mean, th there, there are things that I know, Ellen, you know, even though I've never asked her the question, even though we probably never even thought about the question, I know how she's going to respond to it before I've even thought about what the question is because we know each other so well. What Paul is saying, what John is saying, is that you can know God and God can know you. That you can have fellowship with God. And that as you study Scripture and through the sanctifying power of the Spirit and, and through the, the interaction that you have with other Christians and through, through other interactions with God's Word and all these kinds of things, that there comes a point in your life where you realize, I know God and God knows me. And getting back to 1 John in chapter 2, beginning in verse 3, John says that you can know that you know God because of three different things that you begin experiencing, which we're going to begin looking at in detail next week. But here are the three, just to kind of give you a taste. The first one is this. Verses 4 through 6, you know that you know when you have an, a, an experience, when you experience a behavioral change. In verse 4, he says, the man who says, I know him, but does not do what he commands is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But if anyone obeys his word, God's love is truly made complete in him. This is how we know we are in him. Whoever claims to live in him must walk as Jesus did. You know, there are lots of things that you can do in this life that, that, that you, you don't have to be very specific with your words for people to understand that this is your state or this is your your relationship or this is you know this is you know this is the realm this is the world that you live in you know in the way that that you 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 change uh in the way that you think in the in the in the way that you respond in the way that you react in your desires in the things that you yearn for the things that are important to you people can see that there's a change in you you, you know, one of the one of the things that, uh, you know, at, at the most base level, you know, when, when Ellen and I were getting very serious and we, we got married, I mean, there were lots of things that changed. I stopped asking, other, when we started dating, I stopped asking other girls for their phone numbers. I mean, that was like one of the first basic things. I stopped thinking about going to the movies with other girls because she was the one. I was in this this relationship that was getting special and after we got married i mean there were other things you, you know i've talked to you about uh, about uh you know changing you know I, I was i was such a slob and and changing because she's a need freak and ordering is her her deal and, and she hates clutter you know learning you know making those changes i mean they were gut-wrenching at times you know, to, to not leave that trail of clothing. I mean, at the most basic level, there were some ethical changes, like a behavioral changes in my life. 
But they also went a whole lot deeper. And the same with her. The same for anybody that's ever been married. I mean, all of a sudden you realize that you're not, you're not just living for yourself anymore, but you're living for this other person. And you begin to experience some really strange things like, you, you know... You know, I'm a, I'm a laid-back individual. I, I don't, you know, patient, long-suffering, all that kind of stuff. Don't get upset very very easily. You know, you can say whatever you want about me. I, you know, I, I don't get too upset about it. But then all of a sudden, you know, I notice that I wasn't all that laid-back if I thought that Ellen was being mistreated or somebody was... All of a sudden, behavioral change inside of me. Something else was becoming more and more important. The way that I spend money. The way that you spend money, spouses. The way that you spend money. You just don't think about yourself anymore. You're thinking about a greater good. You're thinking about another individual. You're thinking about a, a larger scenario than just yourself. And that's what John is driving at in this behavioral change. One of the things that you see happening in your life that you know it, that the experience of this is a sign that you know God is the things that are important to God become important to you. And where you were selfish at one time, you're no longer selfish. And where you had no compassion, all of a sudden there is compassion. And where there was an emptiness, you know, that, that drove you into all kinds of erratic and destructive behavior, there is a change now towards wholesomeness and an integrity and an honesty, a proactive honesty in life that you've never experienced before because of your relationship with Him. We'll talk more about that next week. But then in verses 7 and 11, you know, you know, when you experience a change in relationships. John says, Dear friends, I'm not writing you a new command, but an old one which you have had since the beginning. The old command is the message you have heard, yet I'm writing you a new command. It's truth is seen in him and you because the darkness is passing and the true light is already shining. Anyone who claims to be in the light but hates his brother is still in the darkness. Whoever loves his brother lives in the light and there is nothing in him to make him stumble. But whoever hates his brother is in the darkness and walks around in the darkness. He does not know where he's going because the darkness has blinded him. You know, one of the things that John says that helps you know that you're in this, this strong relationship with God is that you begin to feel differently about brothers and sisters. And one of the things that you'll notice as we go through the rest of 1 John is that there are these cycles where John repeats himself with these three experiences or these three tests or these three you know, realities of what it means to be in a relationship and fellowship with God. And it, one, one of the big ones is that there is a difference in the way that you treat a brother and sister based on, the, on, on what it means to live in light as God is in the light. And then the third one, is you know that you know when you experience the gospel. And this one will take on a couple of different uh, levels of meaning. At, at one point, it's you, you know when you confess Christ come in the flesh, which is not what the Antichrist was doing. When you experience what it is that, that, that only the Son can do for you. And he'll say, beginning in chapter 2, verse 22, that no one who dies, denies the Son has the Father. So one of the experiences where you know you know has to do with the experience that you have of the Gospel, that is personally with Christ Jesus. And that's where we're going to end tonight. Uh, Ben's going to lead us in a song in just a minute. But you know, uh, you know to tie everything together tonight, you know, one, one of the things... That, that, that John really cuts the legs out from under is this idea 
that, that any of the things that you do in this life, any of the good things that you do in this life, the, the good deeds, the good works, the good words that you might speak, any of the good things that you might do for somebody else, for an institution, for an organization, for somebody that's poor, somebody that is, you know, that is suffering or struggling in this world, the things that you might do that are positive, none of that is enough to get you saved, to overcome the sin, to overcome the penalty of that sin that your guilt cries out to have paid with your own life. What John is talking about is a, a special kind of relationship with God that can, only be, that can only be had when we understand that He is light and we are darkness. That God is light and in Him there is no darkness. And that our problem is that darkness. That God is light, we are in that darkness, and the only way out of it is through Christ Jesus, who is the righteous one, who is the atoning sacrifice for our sins. The things that we could not do he has done by living that perfect life. And that debt that, we, that, we, that, that has to be paid if there is to be justness, justice in the universe, that, that debt that has got to be paid for those crimes that have been committed against God's, against God's good creation, that was paid for in Christ Jesus on the cross. 1 John chapter 2, verse 2 should be memorized by every member of this church. He is that atoning sacrifice. He is the one that brings us into oneness with God, that which we can never do. When we deny that there's sin, we deny that we've committed sin, we make God out to be a liar and we're self-deceived. But the good news is that He is the righteous one. And not only did He pay that debt, but, but every moment that you are in a relationship with, with God and, 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 and a son or daughter of God, that Christ is that, that proxy, that, that advocate, that lawyer who is not begging God for mercy. He's not begging God to give you one more chance. He's not begging God to, you know, to be patient as you develop. He's not, he's not begging God to give you one more chance based on the fact that you know that you messed up and you really feel bad about it. You promise never to do it again. Because at some point, I mean, we start to sweat thinking that at any minute God's going to lose His patience with us and He's going to bring the hammer regardless of what Jesus is begging for. No, what John is telling us is that the, it is the righteous one, it is His righteousness that is the case that He is making every moment of the day for us. That He's making a case and that He's asking for justice, not mercy. Mercy is why God had started, but justice is the case that He's making. And God, and God has forgiven us in Christ. The way that you accept that is, is, is you open your hands and you, you, drop, you, you drop all of those attempts to do it on your own. It doesn't work. It's, it's self-deceived. You're deluded to think that you'll ever do anything that, that will amount to your salvation. It won't happen. It'll wear you out. It'll frustrate you and, and disillusion you. But when you open those hands and you realize that it's been done on the cross and you see it for what it really is, then you're not afraid. You're not afraid to confess your sins because you know it's true. Light and we're in darkness. 
And it's only through Christ, as Paul was saying in Colossians 1, that we get transferred from the kingdom, the dominion of darkness, into light. We, we are participating in His death and burial and resurrection, what He did on the cross and being buried and being resurrected to newness of life. We participate in that through faith and the power of God when we are baptized, sins being washed away, participating in that death, burial, and resurrection, and realizing that we're being born again to a new life. Paul will say in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, we're new creatures. Which means that it's not graduation. It's not living off of the fat of the land and not, you know, it, it, no, it's the beginning of a new way of living, a new life, a new, a new, a new stream of consciousness in the world, new experiences of, 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 of reaction and response to the kinds of things that you encounter every day through the, through the Spirit empowering you, through the, God's Word instructing your mind. And that's what's available. And, and, and not only that, what happens to you through space and time is as you get to know God and, and you have that fellowship with Him, that joy develops. And regardless of whatever sad thing might happen to you in this life, you have the one thing that you want and need and want to possess more than anything else, and that's Christ as your treasure. And they can take anything away from you, but they can't take that. And because that can't be taken, then neither can your joy or your confidence that you are His and that you are His forever. And that you begin... You begin to see those changes take place in your life. The things that are important to God become important to you. Your relationship with one another. All of a sudden, you're no longer mean and, and selfish and impatient and without self-control and ungentle and, and you know, rough. But all of a sudden, that fruit of the Spirit begins to develop in your life and you begin to... Behavioral changes take place and your relationship with other believers and other people, other human beings, begins to change. And every time you go to the Gospel... Every time you go to the Gospel, you experience the overwhelming awe of being loved and chosen and died for and substituted for and redeemed and bought out of, brought out of the slavery to sinfulness, being redeemed and brought out of that darkness, the transference of your life into something that's not just special, but holy. And not just holy, but becoming more and more Christ-like in all that you do. Some of our shepherds are going to be down here at the front. If there's a way that we can minister to you tonight, come down and talk to the shepherds as we stand and sing this song.